You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wise, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit hankgarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm really excited to have Stephanie London on the show with me today. She has such a fun uh, writing catalog. Uh, her books are amazing and funny and sweet and all of the the things that um, – the things that just get you ready for uh, for bright, sunny, sunny summertime uh, reading. And um, I, you know, I always look for uh, books to to get me kind of in that mood and in the, um, uh, you know, to 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 put you in a happy place. And The Dachshund Wears Prada is her brand new book. When you're hearing this, it's out everywhere now. And what a fun romp of a book. I know you're going to love this as much as I did. Welcome to the show, Stephanie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to have you. Um, Stephanie, we begin each show with the same question. And that question is, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? I think I'm a bit of a cliche. I have been a book lover and uh, just a <laughs> fan of stories since I can remember all the way back being a little girl. Um, I was that kid that could never get grounded because getting sent to my room was great because that's where all the books were kept. So I have wanted to be an author just for such a long time. In fact, my mum has my very first, uh, I say published loosely, book that I wrote when I was five years old and we bound them in class and I illustrated it and it was about cats. (laughs) (laughs) And and I understand that that's a a unique uh, thing because you're you wouldn't classify yourself as a cat person now. No, I'm definitely I grew up with uh, dogs. I'm a <laughs> definitely team dog, uh, which you, if you see my writing catalog, is probably quite obvious. <laughs> That's so funny. Um, Stephanie, I, I love that story of uh, writing a book and then your your mother helping you bind it. And um, and, and I've, I've talked to to a few people who have had a similar experience to that and there's something unique about a kid knowing that uh that they can make a book that you know but and and what i mean by that is there you know when you're when you're small and you go to the library or the bookstore um books seem almost ethereal like they just kind of appear out of nowhere um and then one day, for whatever reason, uh, you realize that someone had to write that book, and then you know someone else had to publish it, and there there were people involved in the binding and and the transportation, and then you know the bookstore or the library has to have people that work there that help other people find those books, and and that it's a that that books while while they seem very magical and ethereal. Um, are actually a very human experience, and when when a small child has that realization, um, it's almost like they get to be part of the magic now. 
It's so true. And I have very vivid memories of being in primary school in Australia. And um, we had a very famous author, John Marsden, there that wrote the Tomorrow When the War Began series. Um, he's a huge Australian author. And I remember him coming to my school when I was very little. And I had that realization of, oh, people make books. That's that's a thing. That's something that I could do. And I was that kid that like I would grab a bunch of paper from my dad's printer and staple <laughs> it together and write my own choose your own adventure novels. And I've, you know, then I graduated later on to doing kind of knockoff Sweet Valley High books. And I've just <laughs> always had that in me from the earliest possible point. Well, you, you mentioned Australia and um, you have uh, a, a very interesting accent. Um, you, you are from Australia but you're not currently living there. Is that right? That's correct. So these days I live in Toronto in Canada. We've been here for about eight years, um, but I was born and raised in Melbourne, but actually both of sides of my family are not Australian. My mother immigrated from the UK when she was a young child herself and my dad's family is Italian. So I'm quite the mixed bag. <laughs> I love that. Um, do, were you writing and publishing when you lived in Australia or has that been since coming to North America? It's funny, it kind of all happened at about the same time. My first book with Harlequin literally came out two months before I left Australia to move to Canada. And like the like leaving my job and coming to another country was like actually a significant part of me becoming a full-time writer. So those two things are very intertwined. Wow. Um, do you... Since you you uh, didn't have, you know most of your writing journey and writing and publishing journey happened um, here in North America as opposed to there I I guess you don't have um, much of a, a way to contrast um, what those experiences or 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 do you do, do you do you have any um, thoughts about publishing here versus there or you know is is the um, is is the business different? What do, do you have any insight into that? A little bit, yeah. I started writing in 2012, which was about two years before I left. So I have, you know, a couple of years of experience there. And I think one of the things that is obviously a big difference is just the size of the market and the size of the industry. So in Australia, it's a lot smaller country than um, in America. And so there are uh, like less publishing houses that publish out of Australia. And a lot of the people in Australia that end up getting published and not necessarily working with agents and editors and publishing houses in Australia. It's very common for you to be based there, but actually working with people in North America or the UK or other places, um, which can make time zones really fun and challenging to organise <laughs> meetings and attend <laughs> workshops. And so the, you know, Australia being in the middle of the nowhere can be a little bit of a pain when you're doing those things. Um, but one thing I do love about it is that the writing community there is tight because it's really small compared to over here and people tend to all know each other and it's a really it's a really lovely writing community that they have over there but it definitely comes with its challenges well i i know that um you know podcasting with australian uh, authors is is a lot of fun because you know when when we're emailing back and forth and trying to find a time it's like uh okay i'll 
I'll be at like 6 p.m. my time, and that'll be like 8 a.m. your time, mm-hmm. but you'll be at the next day. And so you'll be actually Skyping in from the future. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it is. And you tend to get, I mean, we had to institute a rule in my house when I was on submission the first time that I was not allowed to check my emails at three in the morning because that's when I would get stuff sometimes and it would drive my husband crazy because then I would be wide awake and I couldn't get back to sleep. So, right. yeah, it's definitely a challenge. <laughs> That is so funny. Um, Stephanie, we are huge uh, fans, supporters, proponents of NaNoWriMo. And um, I understand that your writing journey actually uh, began or coincided with a NaNoWriMo one year. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. So so tell us that story. So I – I, like I said before, I've always wanted to be a writer, and um, but I decided to actually sort of like take the plunge as an adult and try and write a book with the idea of finishing it and maybe getting it published um, when I was about sort of in my late 20s, 28 maybe. And I had joined a writer's group and I was reading a lot. I knew I wanted to write a romance novel. But I was sort of in that stage of like, I'm I'm a, like a student at heart. And sometimes that can be a bit of a challenge because you have this idea that you have to learn everything before you do. And that's not always the best way to go. And so I'd been finding it a little bit hard to figure out how to get started while I was still learning so much. And then NaNoWriMo came along. And I literally decided, sitting at my desk in the corporate head office of a bank in Melbourne, that on November 1st, I was just going to go for it. This NaNoWriMo today, I had no plan, I had nothing organised, and I just literally got home from work that night and started writing, and that ended up being my first book. So I have to ask you this, and and this, we're going to um, stick our toe into the conversation about these two camps that writers love to put themselves or put each other in. And that's, you know, down to the camp of, of pantsers versus plotters. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one, one camp for, for listeners out there that, that may not understand those terms, one camp, the plotters are, are people that, that, uh, plan out, plot out their book before they start writing. And and they, they kind of know all of the high points that they need to hit and really lay out a roadmap. And then on the other side, we have the pantsers or people that write by the seat of their pants or fly by the seat of their pants. And and they're just just writing the story as it comes to them. And they're just, you know, chasing the excitement of the story all along and have no idea where it's going or you know, I think the reality is, is most people know where they're going. They just don't know exactly how they're going to get there. And that's, you know, the fun of it for a lot of people. Um, would you say that you began NaNoWriMo uh, as a pantser, that, that you you had no idea where you were going? Or 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 was there a story idea that, that you began with? So I had the smallest little inclination of an okay. idea. Um, I studied ballet myself for a very long time, and I had read an article at some point about NFL players um, in the US doing ballet for sort of like muscle conditioning and strength and flexibility. And I just thought that was like just the idea of these big, burly football players doing Ballet just amuses me to no end. I thought it was fantastic. And I just kind of read that at some point, filed it away in my brain. And in Australia, we don't have the same kind of football, but we have Aussie rules, which is a type of football. And I thought, why? Like, that's a great idea. Why wouldn't I write a book about that? I know ballet quite well because I studied it for a long time myself. So the subject matter was quite comfortable to me. 
I set it in Melbourne. And um, so I had that concept in my head, but literally the characters, their backstories, nothing else. I just sat down and started writing. And I think in a perfect world, that's how I would, I would kind of go about things. I don't like to I don't, I'm definitely not a plotter. I don't like to be too planned in what I do because then I get bored and I don't want to write the story anymore. But working in traditional publishing, it, it can be a bit of a challenge to go about like that because if you want to sell a book to a publisher, you need to have a synopsis. And, <laughs> you know, so I've just come to an agreement with my editors and my agent that they know that my synopsis is at best a loose guideline of what I'm going to give them when I write the book. <laughs> I love that. And might be a completely different book when it's yep. when it's. I love that. Um, so that first NaNoWriMo experience, if, if people are not familiar, you write uh, a novel. And by by novel, the definition of that for them is 50,000 words in the month of November. Um, you finished that month. Uh, you, you didn't quite hit the 50,000 words, did you? Um, no. But uh, I, I think what you did accomplish um, was a huge accomplishment and in, in that you 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 formed a habit there uh, and you found a passion of yours and you did continue that book after the month of November, right? Yeah, that's right. I am definitely a finisher. I'm a person that very much likes to tick something off a list. So I was like, yeah. I am knee deep in this book now, so it must be done. <laughs> right. And and that's a, that's as important um as the you know the arbitrary fifty thousand word uh, you know limit, it's it's the it's more about building the habit and it's more about um, kind of proving to yourself that that it can be done. At what at the end of that first November, the end of that first NaNoWriMo, what, how did you feel about the project? And um, you know, did you did you have an eye on the future? Did did you have a a plan to to get this thing finished? I felt exhilarated. I honestly, it was one of the, like the best experiences of my life was I just sunk into this story and the words came and I wrote more than I ever thought possible in a month. And it was just, it was the kind of like creative freedom I don't think I had experienced um, previous to that. So it was a really wonderful experience. Um, and I was very, I'm an extremely goal oriented person. So I was determined to finish the book and um, I happened to be at that point in time a member of a really lovely supportive group of romance writers um, that we met every month and I would share passages of my work and I had one of the ladies in that group pull me aside um, after I'd been to a few meetings and she basically said to me, look, she's like, your your writing is, is phenomenal. It's unusual to see someone so early in their journey producing what you're doing. So just like, please promise that you'll keep going and that meant so much to me at that early stage in my journey that I was like yeah I've got support my husband is extremely supportive my family was very supportive and I was like yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna do this I'm just gonna finish the book and then I'm gonna figure out how to get it published things we never got over the new book by best-selling author Lucy score bearded bad boy Barber Knox refers to live his life the way he takes his coffee alone unless you count his Basset Hound Waylon. Knox doesn't tolerate drama even when it comes in the form of a stranded runaway bride. Naomi wasn't just running away from her wedding. 
She was riding to the rescue of her estranged twin to knock him out Virginia, a rough around the edges town where disputes are settled the old-fashioned way, with fist and beer, usually in that order. Too bad for Naomi, her evil twin hasn't changed at all. After helping herself to Naomi's car and cash, Tina leaves her with something unexpected. The niece Naomi didn't know she had. Now she's stuck in town with no car, no job, no plan, and no home, with an 11-year-old going on 30 to take care of. There's a reason Knox doesn't do complications or high-maintenance women, especially not the romantic ones. But since Naomi's life imploded right in front of him, the least he can do is help her out of her jam. And just as soon as she stops getting into new trouble, he can leave her alone and get back to his peaceful, solitary life. At least that's the plan until the trouble turns to real danger. Things We Never Got Over, the new book by best-selling author Lucy Score. An Innocent Client, the first book in the Joe Dillard legal thriller series. A preacher is found brutally murdered in a Tennessee motel room. A beautiful, mysterious young girl is accused. In this best-selling debut, criminal defense lawyer Joe Dillard has become jaded over the years as he's tried to balance his career against his conscience. Savvy but cynical, Dillard wants to quit doing criminal defense, but he can't resist the chance to represent someone who might actually be innocent. His drug-addicted sister has just been released from prison, and his mother is succumbing to Alzheimer's. But Dillard's commitment to the case never wavers despite the personal troubles and professional demands that threaten to destroy him. Chosen by BookBub readers as one of the top 100 crime novels of all time, get started on this great series with an innocent client where it all started. Read for free with Kindle Unlimited or buy it in paperback or audiobook. An Innocent Client by Scott Pratt. So, um, and, and you've got this this great story on your website where you talk about the the whole process and you, you walk through, you know, the revision process and all of that. Um, it, w- one thing that I found very interesting was that 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 book that you started writing at NaNoWriMo and your first um, your first story idea that, that you saw all the way to the end was the first book that you published, right? Yes, which is quite unusual because, you know, you often hear the story of people that sort of like paper the wall with rejection letters and I yes. managed to sell my first one. Now, let, like I have to be clear, I've since had many rejections enough to paper my wall because that's just <laughs> part of being an author. But I was very lucky that I got a foot in the door with that first one. The um the story of people that publish the first thing that they write, it, those stories are so few and far between. Most people have um, what we would call a trunk novel or a desk drawer novel, you know, that first um, uh, story idea and they, they write it through and for whatever reason, it just doesn't work. And it just, it just never can be whipped into publishable shape, you know, and, and people, you know, write that up as experience. And, uh, you know, this was, you know, kind of the dues that I have to pay. And now I'm going to go on and, and write the next thing. And, you know, the, the kind of, uh, stick to um, that, that, that gets people to, to write a whole different novel when they've been rejected on one. Um, you know, that, that's a, that's a whole different mindset. And, uh, you know, we, we can talk about that all day long. Um, but the fact that, 
that the first thing that you wrote did get published and it went through, you know, several revisions and it, mm-hmm. it grew and changed and, and all of that. Um, can you look back now and, 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 and say, you know, why it was that that first novel, uh, you know, that, that you stuck with it instead of, you know, when, you know, after maybe that first revision or two and it just wasn't working quite right. Um, why you chose to stick with that novel and keep working on it and keep changing and revising as opposed to just scrapping it and going on to another idea? Yeah, I think there's two reasons for that. Um, one, as I said before, I am like just a student at heart. Any opportunity that I have to learn and to work with someone that knows more than me about something is like gold to me. I love it. It's just something that excites me on a very deep level and I really loved the editor that I was working with in that revision process. She was incredibly supportive and I learned so much about writing from her in that process. So I viewed it as even if they put me through three rounds of revisions and it doesn't sell, I don't care because I'm in it for the experience. And the second thing is that if you would ask my parents, I was probably the world's most stubborn child and haven't changed (laughs) at all. I love that. If I want to do something, I am like a dog with a bone. Like <laughs> I will just keep at it until I, I crack the nut, you know. Right, right. Stephanie, if someone is not familiar with your work, um, how would you describe the kinds of stories that you tell? I love to write real people in fantastical situations and stories about about finding love and becoming a better version of yourself. So I I really, you know, some of the situations in romance novels can be kind of outlandish and maybe a little <laughs> bit unrealistic here and there. But to me, the characters, no matter how outlandish the situation, the characters are always really rich and authentic and flawed and vulnerable. And um, I like to write stories that, yeah, it's a bit of a cliche but they make you laugh make you cry I write romantic comedies but they're not um they're not super fluffy kind of stories they do have a lot of emotional depth to them so don't be surprised if there's a scene that makes you tear up after you've been laughing in the previous one so Stephanie one of the things that I love to talk about more than just about anything uh when it comes to writing is the um there's a a magical time in the creative process and um and and, you know magic is just one of the best ways that i can describe it because and i'll explain what i mean by that in one moment um you like like your your newest book the dachshund wears prada that we're talking about today at one moment that book didn't exist at all nothing Mm -hmm. about that book existed And then either, you know, for whatever reason, you're thinking about something or you see um, an an article on the web or you overhear a conversation, whatever it is, either a character walks onto the stage of your mind or you start playing the what if game, uh, you know, in your mind for for whatever reason. And then you start casting um, that what if game with with characters that that, you know, you dream up or whatever. And then in in one form or another, the Dachshund Wears Prada does exist then, and it's your job as the writer to to dig that story out and and to whip it into shape. And and 
you know, I don't know what you call that other than it's just, it's just magic of some sort It just, you know, stories come from where they come from and, uh, characters come from where they come from. And, and we don't have a whole lot of control over that. It, you know, and mm-hmm. we, we do over the, the, you know, whipping the story into shape, but that moment of creation is just, uh, you know, I don't know what you call it, but w- what is that first moment of creation like for you? You know, it's a little different for every book. I find that that's the most interesting thing about being a writer, at least for me, is that on some level, my process changes with every book depending on what the book needs. Interesting. So sometimes the ideas come to me character first, and sometimes they come concept first. Sometimes I have like an actual brainstorming session as I I call it the mental filing cabinet. I said this to my husband recently. It's like I, the ideas live in the filing cabinet and sometimes I open the drawer and it's really full and sometimes it's not. And I have to leave it a while and then come back later to see what the filing cabinet has produced. And that's a little bit what it feels like. It's just stuff exists in my brain. And then at some point I can access it and turn it into something, which sounds extremely vague, but that is how it how it feels. They just, on some level, I don't even think I create the stories. I simply excavate them from my brain. Yeah, I, I love that, and and that's yeah. They just, you know, I don't I don't know. That's uh, the, we could teach a whole class on on where um, stories come from and and not even crack the code. I, I mm-hmm. feel like it's it's just you know we just get to be part of the process. It's it's crazy. So you you published that first book, um, and then you know, looking at your your back catalog, you have gone on to publish like eighty books or something. Um, that's a, that's a bit of exaggeration, but um, you yeah, there's there's a few. <laughs> yeah, there, there's there's quite a few. Um, some of them are standalone, some of them are series. Um, how do you feel about writing series characters? I really enjoy being able to revisit a world. So I I think naturally I have gravitated towards writing more series just because I find like I'm a person that really enjoys world building. And I think that that's not something that we always tend to think about when we look at contemporary fiction. People tend to go to like speculative fiction, sci-fi, fantasy. Um, But even in a contemporary world, you are creating Uh, the inhabitants and the feeling and the space. And I really enjoy that. And I find that that itch is kind of not scratched with one book. I like to have several books in a world so that I can fully explore that thing that I'm creating to the depth that would probably be a little bit onerous if I were to try and do it in one book. Well, and, and the, you know, I'm glad you use the term world building because um, I also like to use that even outside of where it, it normally gets used in fantasy and sci-fi and things like that because when um, even if it's in a contemporary setting, there there are um, certain things about that setting, certain characters, certain um, locales that that you then get to drop the reader into this established um, aesthetic that that's already you don't have to do the work all over again for each book and that and 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 that's very important to. To be able to kind of hit the ground running with with a new chapter in the story. Mm, it's true. And I think that the other thing is, 
that sometimes when you've written that first book, you think, oh, damn, I should have included X, Y, Z. But now that you get to revisit that place, you like you can put that in a subsequent book. So it's sort of like you get a chance to um, plug any gaps or, um, you know, push the world in a slightly different way that you didn't get to do in the first book because it didn't suit the story or you didn't think of it. So, I, yeah, I really enjoy that, taking something that I've already created and kind of twisting it and looking at it from a slightly different angle. Your new book, The Dachshund Wears Prada, um, was my wife and I were were looking through some email one day and we got a, an email from your publicist and and we both kind of laughed out loud and said, oh, this is this is something that we've got to talk about on the show um, for for folks that are not um, familiar with dog breeds. The Dachshund is an interesting creature um my mother had had dachshunds uh her whole life and they uh, toward the end of my mother's life she had this this pet that just hated me um <laughs> it was it was so funny because it was it was this this kind of um it was this running family joke you know but but dachshunds tend to um, bond with their with their owner and can be very aloof and even um you know, just just snotty toward anyone else that that is not their person that they bond with. And um, in reading this book, it's so funny that you you really nailed, um, you know, a lot of that uh, kind of uh, relationship between um, between dog owner and then other people that come into the in, into her life. Um, we have this this character of Isla Thompson. Um, wh- where did Isla come from? Isla came slowly. She, I, Theo, the hero, came to me very quickly, as did Camilla the dog and the concept. Isla took her time um, speaking to me. But I think, and I think maybe that's because, like, I don't tend to write myself into stories, but I do find that Isla and I share a lot of traits, and I think that that's why it took a little bit longer is because I sort of recognise some of myself in her, and she's this very responsible but also ambitious person, which is kind of um, me a little bit. And so I loved writing the fact that she, you know, really wanted to chase her dreams, but also has this responsibility to care for her younger sister since their mother had left them um, when the little sister was quite young. And she, through the story, is sort of battling the wanting to build a life for her sister and make sure that she has access to her dreams and but also go out on a limb for herself and build something amazing. And I really enjoyed being able to write that kind of push and pull within her. The uh, the Dachshund Wears Prada deals with uh, not only this this great story of uh, of this dog owner and his dog and 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 Isla who who comes into their world, um, but really hits on some uh, some contemporary issues that that are um, you know very much part of 21st century life, and that's the idea of social media and its. Mm-hmm hold on all of us and the dangers that that a lot of people are learning about um social media Uh, how did that aspect of the story come in that came in because i think myself i have a complicated relationship with social media (laughs) um so actually before writing fiction i was a blogger 
and I had a YouTube channel and I made videos and I was uh, running a website. And so I have some firsthand experience having a sort of side job doing that kind of stuff. And I think one thing that I found was that when people are given anonymity, behavior changes. And I've always found that quite interesting that you know, thinking about the generation coming up now, like Danny, the younger sister in the book would be, that they don't know anything else. They have lived their whole lives online without privacy in some ways. And I just, I find that very interesting. And I wanted, I've explored it in a few books because the topic fascinates me endlessly. Um, but in in the, um, the Dash Hound Wears Prada, I wanted to kind of look at it from a point of view of having a hero who was exceptionally private in a world where privacy is um, not really given to a lot of people or they choose to let it go themselves. And I thought that was quite an interesting juxtaposition between her job and what he craves as a person. So as you started kind of um, unfolding these story elements that you were obviously thinking about, how did, uh, you know, you said that Isla came came later to you and the other elements of the story came um I, I don't know about first but more vividly maybe um mm-hmm. how did how did all of the elements come together and when did you start realizing what the narrative of the story was well i wrote an initial proposal um for my publisher because i had decided that we were um I wanted to keep working with the editor that I was already working at with at Harlequin because I love her to bits and she really gets me. And so I pulled together a bit of an idea and sent it to her and my agent and said, what do you think? And at that stage, it was a completely different kind of story. They had the the dog element was there, but none of the social media stuff was actually in the original version of this book. And Um, I got on the phone with my editor and she kind of said to me, she's like, look, she's like, the dog thing is super fun. Like, I really like that. And your voice is shining in the pages. She's like, but there's just something missing in the concept. Um, Go away, have a think about it, focus on the heroine and what she wants and try and figure her out because I think that's what's missing. So I took the proposal away and I kind of stewed on it for a while and I think I was just, again, like scrolling articles because I kind of get strange ideas from just reading the media. And it just, I started to just think more and more about this, like he comes from this super wealthy family, like what if he was kind of a hermit character? What would be the worst possible thing for him and how can I make that into a really great heroine? And then I started to think, oh yeah, she must have a job that's in the spotlight. And since I'm not, super big on writing celebrity-based stories, I was like, oh, what if she's kind of a behind-the-scenes person? And it sort of started to grow from there. And once I figured out what Isla's situation was, her as the character started talking to me. It was sort of like I just had to unlock that last little bit of information about her situation. And then she was starting to speak and tell me what she wanted in life and kind of her personality was coming through. So, yeah, it's it was one of those cases where I really missed the mark on the idea the first time I tried to write it, but with a little bit of the right kind of push from the right people, um, it forced me to sort of maybe not take the low-hanging fruit and keep thinking about the idea and dig a bit deeper and get a bit more creative. So um, when did you realize that the the perfect connector for Isla and Theo was was his dog? 
Oh, the dog was there from the beginning. I knew <laughs> that I wanted this sassy little beast and that she was going to cause all sorts of problems. I had watched Sex in the City back in the day. And there's an episode where Carrie is at a book signing and she gets upstaged by a dog. And I don't know why, but I found that so funny. And ever since, it's kind of been in my head. And then I thought, well, yeah, what if we have this this girl that has this massive fall from grace and then she ends up essentially being a personal assistant to a rich dog? And it just kind of <laughs> all went from there. But in the original version of the story, the grandmother was still alive and it was the grandmother's dog. And um, so it was actually less, less connected and it works so much better to have it being Theo's dog um, in the in the story as it is now. But yeah, that was from the beginning. I was like, I'm going to write this sassy dog. I just need to figure out the rest of the story around it. <laughs> Was it one of those that once you had kind of identified all the pieces and and where these characters fit in and then, uh, you know, Camilla the dog comes in, did, did the story just kind of write itself from there? A hundred percent. Yeah, it was funny because I think the proposal the first time I knew something was not right with it, but I was kind of couldn't see the forest for the trees. And the second that we figured out what the real story was under that, that book just flew out of me. It was I love I love when that happens. Sadly, that's not every book, but it was this book. So um, I, I've noticed on Amazon that they already have posted uh, Pets of Park Avenue uh, book mm-hmm. two in the Paws in the City um, uh, series. Had, did, when did you realize that that this idea had serious potential? Oh, we pitched it as a series like from the beginning. Mm. So I knew that um, right from the start I was – I was going to love this world way too much just to write one book. And um, so we actually, we've contracted it for three books, but we're in talks potentially about adding a fourth just because I'm having so much fun with it. It seems to be getting really great reception, which is amazing. Um, I think people people love dogs and, absolutely. you know, rom-coms and dogs go together like peanut butter and jelly. So Right. Absolutely. Um, and that, that second book is coming out in December. Is that right? That's right. Yep. End of the year. Well, if if you love the Dachshund Wears Prada and, and it's available everywhere today when you're hearing this, um, rest assured more is coming later in the year. That's uh, that's great news, Stephanie. Um, the Dachshund Wears Prada available everywhere now. Uh, go grab it today in either paperback or Kindle edition. Uh, we'll have links in the show notes where you can grab those, but also in audiobook. Um, I've not heard any of the audiobook yet, Stephanie. Have you? No, I haven't. Um, I did hear a sample of, because I get to hear the narrator before they sign them onto the contract. So I've heard a sample of her work and she is phenomenal. So I was very pleased, but I haven't actually had a sneak peek just yet. So I'm refreshing my inbox eagerly waiting for that. I'm I'm sure this story is going to translate um, uber well to to audiobook. So that's going to be a fun listen for sure. I hope so. <laughs> yeah. um, Stephanie, if people are just discovering you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you do, where can they find you online? Uh, so my website is www.stephanie-london.com and that's Stephanie with an F because my parents wanted to make my life difficult. So remember, <laughs> it's an F, not a PH. And um, basically everything you could possibly need is uh, there on my website. I recommend signing up for the newsletter um, because I love to share lots of really funny behind the scenes stories and cover reveals and all that good stuff there. So that's probably the best place to start. 
Love it. We'll link uh, that up as well in the show notes to make it easy for folks to find you. Stephanie, um, I love the new book. We're going to send everyone to pick up their copy of The Dachshund Wears Prada. And uh, thank you so much for taking time to come on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. This is really fun. Now stay tuned for an audiobook excerpt from Richard Glebe's The Jason Crane Series. Midnight struck. The Sandman had come. A few faint notes drifted through the rooms of 417 Gorybrook. The hollow wind testing the weatherproofing, the weak scritch of the persimmon tree against Zeph's window, and the drone of Hedwig's snoring. The old house shifted, creaked, and the shade of Agatha Van Brunt descended from the attic. Brahm, she called. The ghost paused, collecting herself on the stair. She passed a mirror, but the glass remained empty, reflecting only absence. Agatha would not have recognized herself anyway. She had been beautiful long ago, and still was in her own mind. Not a toothless and wizened specter. Not a blue chalk sketch of a hag half erased from the blackboard of night. She drifted into the master bedroom, disappeared into a shaft of moonbeams, and reappeared on the other side. She stood over Hedwick listening to him snore. But Hedwig was not Brahm. She needed Brahm. She slipped through the floor into Zeph's bedroom. She stood over him for a long time, listening to the persimmon tree's weak coffin scratch on the window screen. Brahm? No, this was not Brahm. Not Brahm, her son. But she loved this boy. So much hidden potential. He reminded her of Dylan, her grandson. Dylan had slept in this room many, many times. But Dylan was dead, never to return. This boy, Zeph, was alive, so alive. Oh, would that he might remain so forever. Look at him. Who would consign such a handsome lad to the rot of death? Only a very cruel and blind god. Agatha brushed her spectral lips to Zeph's cheek. He stirred, scratched the spot, and rolled into his pillow. But Zeph was not Brahm. Where? Oh, Brahm is dead. She remembered now. Brahm is dead, and so are Hermanus, my husband, and Hans, my brother, and old Baltus Van Tassel, and Katrina. All dead. Only old Agatha remains, after a fashion, to trouble the world. Her sense of herself sharpened and returned to her. She searched the rooms for the crane boy. She sensed him. Yes, here was the boy, sleeping fitfully, holding his animal. She extended a hand as if to reach into Jason's chest and take his heart in her talons. The dog woke, sensing Agatha's presence, and growled. Growl till your voice cracks, cur. I could kill this child myself. I could possess the man or the boy. I could take the butcher knife from the drawer. I could stride through the night in strong male form and dissect this child at my whim. Something struck her. Something blasted her up and away from the boy. She collected her energies again and tried to re-enter but could not pass through the walls. 
When she found her voice, it came as hollow and cold as wind through a tomb. Who is here? Agatha whispered, and her tone might have withered grass. Show yourself. She waited with growing confusion and anxiety. She threw herself forward and battered the door like a tempest. Who is here? She cried. But no one answered. 